And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you all for listening today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. I'm pretty excited about this week's movie. Same. Yeah, we'll be doing a little bit of a callback to some early episodes. That's true. So this week's movie is the... Well, at the time, it was marketed as a mystery romance. Okay. Uh, But probably the more accurate description would be gothic horror, although today it is considered to be a precursor to the slasher genre. It's 1946's The Spiral Staircase. Cool. So this film is based on a novel, but the novel it's mostly based on isn't the one you might think from the title. That's confusing. That's well, a don't, confusing sentence, Ben. Why don't you make it less confusing for us, Sarah? Uh, sure. So my understanding is that this film is based off of the 1933 novel Some Must Watch mm-hmm. by Ethel Lina White. And the name was changed because of the popularity of a previous movie, a previous piece of media, I Mm -hmm. guess, called The Circular Staircase from 1908 by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, adaptations of which we've seen with The Bat, episode 16, and from 1926, and The Bat Whispers, episode 23, and from 1930. So those were way back in the early dawn era of horror. Yeah, they were old dark house types of movies, Definitely with the comedic elements still built in, too many characters, lots of running around, therefore the circular staircase is very descriptive. Yeah, my understanding is that they took elements from the circular staircase and added them to some must-watch, most prominently a circular staircase in the house. So let me tell you a little bit about... The Circular Staircase and its author, and then I'll talk about Some Must Watch and its author. Yeah, sounds good. So The Circular Staircase was published in serial form in 1907, then collected into a novel in 1908, and it's by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. She's kind of just called the American Agatha Christie. Sure. She was born in 1876 in Pennsylvania. After finishing grade school at age 16, she trained to be a nurse at the Pittsburgh Homeopathic Hospital, graduating in 1896 and meeting her husband there. However, a few short years later, in 1903, they lost their savings in that year's stock market crash. So to help earn some extra income, Reinhardt took to writing, and in that year alone, she produced 45 short stories. Wow. Her most well-known work is the novel, The Circular Staircase, but while this is her most recognized work, she had much other commercial success as a mystery writer, war correspondent, and playwright. Cool. Um, For example, she was in Europe in 1918 when the armistice was signed. Wow. Yeah, she's a real cool lady. Mary Roberts Reinhardt would pass away at age 82 in 1958. She is considered 
the originator of the phrase, the butler did it. Okay. Uh, from her 1930 novel, The Door. That phrase doesn't actually appear, but the idea of, like, the butler doing it kind of occurs in her novels. Gotcha. And she also started the Had I But Known subgenre of mystery stories, where the narrator wonders aloud about the plot, and there is some foreshadowing of the story's end. Right, sort of the thing where the narrator couldn't know what's going on at this time, so it's introduced as, like, had I but known at that very moment that, like, this guy was getting murdered or whatever. Yeah. Now, that particular literary device comes from The Circular Staircase. In the adaptations we've seen of the story and of the novel itself, you could really just describe it as an old dark house type of horror. Mm -hmm. But that literary device, if you think of it now, you think of it as a film noir type of device. Sure, fair. Um, So just to kind of point out that I mean, we talk about it, I think, every episode, especially right now in the 40s, but uh, horror and noir have similar elements. I would say they're like siblings. Like, they're both the siblings of German Expressionism. Sure. It's just that, like, German Expressionism and, uh, like, Gothic literature gave birth to horror, and then, like, film noir is like a half-sibling where it's German Expressionism and, like, crime movies. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Now, with the plot of The Circular Staircase, um, it features Dowager Rachel Innes renting a summer house with her niece and nephew, who are adults. Um, They face down a home invader, some murders, and some mystery. As I mentioned, it was previously adapted to film. There's a lost 1915 silent film version. Oh, that's right. Um, that is called The Circular Staircase. Then in 1920, there was a stage play called The Bat. Mm. So part of the reason why it's called The Bat is her novel was very, very popular, very well known, and it's a mystery. So to help bring in some of that mystery again so people don't just go, Oh, I've read the novel. I know what the answer is. I know who done it. Um, they changed it to The Bat when they adapted it, uh, they being Mary Roberts Reinhardt and a co-author. That 1915 silent film was made by the Selig Polyscope Company, and in 1920, Reinhardt bought back the film rights on the circular staircase. But Selig Polyscope Company still wanted to make that money, so they made the 1926 The Bat film. Oh, okay, right, because Reinhardt has the film rights to The, the Circular, Circular Staircase. Staircase. So Reinhardt did try to file suit to stop the film being made, um, or at least to get, you know, her royalties or copyright or whatever, however that works, uh, but to no avail. So she licensed a novelization of the Bat play in 1926 <laughs> with the goal to also kind of, with the plot's, kind of distance the bat from the circular staircase so they can still kind of be their own thing. That is, that's some convoluted stuff. Yes. And then in 1930, we had The Bat Whispers, which is a remake of the 1926 The Bat, but as a talkie instead. You can tell from the title. Yes. And The Bat Whispers gives written and adapted credits to Reinhardt. Gotcha. The Bat, the 26 Bat, also did, at least in the flyers that they would hand out at theaters? Right, sure. The programs. The programs. But I didn't watch the movie, so I don't know. I don't remember. It's on our Scream Scene playlist. 
listener, if you want to check it out. Yeah. Screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. So with that kind of context, mm-hmm. um, the Bat franchise slash The Circular Staircase, um, it's been a popular novel, it's been a very successful play, and it's been um, successful films. Mm-hmm. So I understand why when making The Spiral Staircase, they decided to bring in that title instead of just sticking with Some Must Watch. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about the author okay. of Some Must Watch. Ethel Lina White was actually born the same year as Mary Roberts Reinhardt, um, 1876, but across the pond in Wales. Oh, they both have three names, so I was starting to get real <laughs> conspiracy theory in my head. Okay. Now, White was as notable as her contemporaries like Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers, but she's kind of faded from, like, popular memory, mm. I would say. Right. White was one of nine children. Uh, she started writing as a child and just kind of never stopped. She'd send essays and poems to be published in children's magazines. <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> As an adult, White had a good government job, but she took the leap to freelance writing and never looked back. She wrote dozens of short stories, and her first novel was published in 1927. Her first mystery novel was Put Out the Light from 1931, and then uh, other notable works I'll mention is... The 1933 novel, Some Must Watch. The 1936 thriller, The Wheel Spins, which was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock in 1938 as The Lady Vanishes. Oh. And uh, the 1942 novel, The Midnight House, the U.S. title being Her Heart in Her Throat, and was adapted to screen in 1945 as The Unseen. Okay. So that's like a very brief selection of her novels. Um, but she published nearly one book a year between 1927 and 1944. Wow. Um, now, partly why I think she's not as well-known is because she died in 1944 at age 68 in London. I guess that explains why the novel stopped. Yes. Uh, productivity does tend to stop after death, uh, unless you are Dracula. <laughs> Her stuff has clearly resonated with people with three of these novels being adapted to screen. Right. Now, as far as the plot of Some Must Watch, um, I couldn't find anything being very definitive, because it is kind of a mystery novel. I think people didn't want to really give it away. But from what I could gather, it features Helen Cappell, and she is hired at an old dark house as a maid out in the country. The matriarch of the house is Lady Warren, who is bedridden and kind of a bit of a grumpy curmudgeon. Okay. The house itself is isolated in the country, and murders start happening around before Helen gets there and continue after she arrives. And the victims all seem to be young working girls just like Helen. These murders are happening closer and closer to the manor, and even as Helen gets worried that, you know, what if it happens here... She's like, no, there's enough people in this house. I'll be okay. You know, we got, like, these guys. We got these girls. Like, I'm not alone. And then as the novel goes on, people leave for whatever reason, and she gets, like, further and further isolated. 
And she begins to suspect that the killer is in the house. Ah. Uh, that um, old chestnut. <laughs> a lot of the people who reviewed it online praised its tension, atmosphere, and the unique range of female characters, which is neat. Um, and quite a few people made allusions to Jane Eyre in the way that it was crafting the tension, um, probably also with the gothic horror and dark manner. Something else that was neat is this one person, she read it for her review and then read it a second time, and she noticed themes about the changing culture, um, with more women going into the workforce, as well as themes of eugenics, which was interesting. Oh, yeah, okay, I understand, yep, I understand that. From looking at the way the film was adapted, Helen in the book is, like, um, a bit, like, lame in one foot, and okay. all of the victims are women who are, like, in some way imperfect. Interesting. And yeah. then we have the lady of the house being an invalid. Yes. It, as described in the book. Yes. That's very interesting. Uh, in any case, um, as the film is adapted in 1946, this is two years after Ethel Lina White would have passed away. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So the film rights for Some Must Watch were originally purchased by independent producer David O. Selznick, who envisioned an adaptation starring Ingrid Bergman. Interesting. Okay, I can see that. Selznick had made similar films in his career earlier, such as Rebecca in 1940 and Spellbound in 1944, both of which were directed by Alfred Hitchcock. However, Selznick's 1946 Technicolor Western... Duel in the Sun, which starred his mistress, Jennifer Jones, and possessed enough racy content to rival Howard Hughes's The Outlaw, <laughs> had seen its budget balloon to over $6 million. Wow. Wow. So, to finance the film, Selznick sold a number of his projects to RKO, including Some Must Watch. So, he sells the movie to RKO in exchange for some money. Then, he also gives RKO the use of his producer, Dor Sherry, director, Robert Siedmack, and actresses, Dorothy McGuire and Ethel Barrymore. And he does this in exchange for a percentage of the film's gross. That's good business. Mm. So, despite handing production of the film over to RKO... Selznick's influence is still sort of all over this film, and people who study his works can still, like, see his typical, like, fingerprints on the way this movie is. So the producer of the film, uh, Isidore Sherry, was born to a Jewish family in Newark in 1905. His initial work was as a journalist, and then from there he moved on to publicity, and then from there to theater as a writer and actor. A play he wrote gained the attention of film producer Walter Wanger, who brought Sherry out to Hollywood. Through the 1930s, Sherry worked freelance, writing scripts for basically every studio in town. In 1942, MGM made Sherry head of their B-movie division. His films of that period were highly successful, with box office draws of over a million dollars on the regular. Dang! In 1944, he accepted an offer to join Selznick's independent production company, Vanguard Films, as head of production. Nice. 
it was under sort of this job title that Sherry produced The Spiral Staircase. When Selznick liquidated Vanguard Films for cash at the end of the decade, Sherry accepted the position of head of production at RKO. When RKO was taken over by Howard Hughes, Sherry and Hughes clashed personally, so Sherry accepted an offer from Louis B. Mayer to become head of production at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Okay. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer had been having difficulty adjusting to the post-war film market. Um, In 1947, they posted their first financial losses ever. Um, Sherry was brought into the studio in 1950, and his films, produced under his belief that entertainment should provoke thought, educate, and inform, were huge box office hits. This put him in direct conflict with studio president Louis B. Mayer, who preferred films to be wholesome, light, family entertainment that didn't confront audiences. Okay, I was going to be like, why would he be in conflict? He's making money. Mm -hmm. Tensions between the two men rose high enough that Mayer ended up going to the head of Lowe's, MGM's parent company, asking for permission to fire Sherry. Whoa. So in 1951, Lowe's removed Mayer from his position as president of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and replaced him with Dor Sherry. Ooh, that, uh, that definitely backfired for him. Yes. But I think the moral to take away from this, the, the lesson to learn, mm-hmm. is that the company is going to go with who is making money. Yes. They don't, like, the company... Like, the bottom line of the company doesn't matter, like, why you're making the thing or why you're doing something. Yeah. If you're making money, they're going to pick you. Yeah. Um, And that is borne out a little later in this story. But uh, Sherry is, you know, therefore the guy who knocked Louis B. Mayer off his perch of, like, the most powerful man in Hollywood. It's his studio. It's got his name on the logo. And Louis B. Mayer ended up dying shortly after losing this job. Uh, do I want to ask how? Um, mostly just like, a, like he died in 57, like six years later. It was kind of one of those, like, without this in his life, he kind of faded away sort of things. Okay. Eventually, Lowe's would also remove Sherry after a series of box office flops at the end of the 1950s. Yeah. See previous notes. Exactly. <laughs> Sherry then returned to Broadway, where he produced hit plays until his death in 1980. He said, quote, I've always had an edge, and the edge is I'm a writer. No matter what happens, I can write. And I'm tough. You have to be tough to outwit them, to wear them down. I've always been lucky that way. End quote. So that's Dor Sherry, the producer. The director of this film is Robert Siedmak, who is, of course, the older brother of Kurt Siedmak. Yeah, we've seen Robert previously. Yes, you can hear more about his early life in our episode on Son of Dracula, which is episode 109. Son of Dracula was in 1943. Since then, he has directed the film noir Phantom Lady, which was produced by Joan Harrison, who was Universal's first female executive. Phantom Lady was a critical and commercial hit, so this was followed with the film noir Christmas Holiday, where Siedmak merged the expressionist style he had used at Ufa in Germany with the urban landscapes of film noir. He directed a series of successful film noirs for Universal, 
culminating in The Killers in 1946, starring Burt Lancaster and debuting Ava Gardner. It was following this triumph, which was a $2.5 million box office, that he was loaned to RKO for The Spiral Staircase. This is the final film from Robert that we'll see on the show. Uh, He's he's definitely, like, solidifying his own feet within film noir. Yes, he would continue with his successful series of film noirs until the 1950s when he grew tired of the genre and tried to break out with different kinds of films, which failed commercially. In 1954, he returned to Germany and resumed his German film career with a series of movies that were critical of his homeland during and after Hitler. He passed away in 1973. Sherry brought in Mel Dinelli, a theater and radio writer, for his first screenplay to adapt Some Must Watch. In writing the film, Dinelli changed many aspects of the novel, such as changing the setting from contemporary England to turn-of-the-century New England, as he felt that enhanced the gothic atmosphere of the story, as well as, as I said earlier, incorporating elements of the circular staircase and changing the title to the spiral staircase. However, the biggest change from the novel came when Dinelli found himself stuck writing the movie with a scene where the lead character, Helen, is cornered by the killer and is, you know, it's she's helpless, right? And, you know, in the novel, she's helpless because she's lame, so she can't, like, run away easily. But there's other people still alive in the house, and Danelli found himself asking, why doesn't she just scream for help? Yeah. So, Helen was changed from lame to mute. Interesting. It is interesting that someone who does writing for radio Mm -hmm. comes up with a mute character. Yeah. The lead role of Helen, originally intended for Ingrid Bergman, went to Dorothy McGuire, who was given a convertible by Selznick as a bonus for doing the movie. (laughs) For a time, Joan Crawford campaigned for this role, uh, following critical acclaim she received for the movie The Woman's Face, where she played a disfigured woman. But Louis B. Mayer refused to loan her out from MGM, telling her, No more maimed women. (laughs) So Dorothy McGuire was born in 1916 in Nebraska, and she began acting on stage at age 13. She arrived in New York in 1937 and achieved her breakout playing the lead in Claudia, which ran from 1941 to 1943. David Selznick then had her brought to Hollywood to star in the movie adaptation of Claudia. She starred in a string of hit films in the 1940s, but her career stalled for a time in the 1950s as she transitioned from playing love interests to mothers. And once she made that transition, her career picked up again, playing mothers in films such as Old Yeller, Swiss Family Robinson, and perhaps the ultimate mother, the Virgin Mary, in 1962's The Greatest Story Ever Told. (laughs) Ultimate mother! She passed away at age 85 in 2001. Uh, The role of Professor Warren, who I would assume is the man of the house, is played by George Brent. 
He was born George Nolan in Ireland in 1904 and joined the Irish Revolutionary Army during the 1919 War of Independence. He fled Ireland after the war with a bounty on his head set by the British government. Yeah. Coming to America, changing his name, and becoming an actor. As could do <laughs> when you're a revolutionary, I guess. He appeared on Broadway throughout the 1920s before coming to Hollywood in the 1930s. He had a very successful career in Hollywood in the 1930s. And then during World War II, he taught pilots as a civilian flight instructor. In the 1950s, he transitioned to television, and he passed away in 1979 after a life of heavy drinking. The performer in the film that Robert Mack was most excited to work with was Ethel Barrymore, the daughter of Maurice Barrymore and Georgiana Drew, sister of John Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore, and grand-aunt of Drew Barrymore. For more on the Barrymores, see our episode on John Barrymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's the uh, 1920 Jekyll and Hyde. So Ethel Barrymore was born in 1879, uh, which makes her 67, making this movie. She began acting following her mother's death in 1893. Her first Broadway performance was in 1895, and she instantly became a big star. She was very popular with men, and in 1898 she turned down an offer of marriage from Winston Churchill. Oh, good good job, girl. Her performances were smash hits, such that audiences kept demanding, like, curtain call after curtain call at the end of the shows with this uproarious applause, asking for encores. So she ended up developing this catchphrase at the end of her shows where she would say, that's all there is, there isn't any more, to rebuff curtain calls. Go home! (laughs) She became involved with the Actors' Equity Association, fighting for profit sharing for actors, as well as health benefits for elderly and infirm actors. She began appearing in films in 1914, and continued on both stage and in film uh, through her career. In 1944, at age 65, she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, but made it clear she did not consider the award to be that impressive. Oh, oh no. Why? What movie? Because she's Ethel Barrymore. (laughs) This Academy Award. I've been acting since 1895. These are, these nude, fangled, like, she just wasn't impressed with the Oscar as, like, a concept. (laughs) I was like, yeah, okay, sure, throw it on the pile. She passed away in 1959. Also in the cast, we have Val Luton regular Kent Smith. Uh, you'll know him as the uh, like male lead in Cat People and Curse of the Cat People. Also featuring in a small role is Rhonda Fleming. Fleming was born Marilyn Lewis in 1923 in Hollywood, and she was signed to an agency at age 16, which changed her name to Rhonda Fleming. After a few early appearances, she was signed by David O. Selznick and given a role as a nymphomaniac in 1945's Spellbound, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. She was 20 years old at the time and had to look up what the word meant in a dictionary when she was told what her part would be, and she found herself quite shocked when she discovered the meaning of the word. Yes! The Spiral Staircase was her next film. 
She went on to become one of the most glamorous actresses in Hollywood. Her fair complexion and red hair photographed exceptionally well in Technicolor, and she became known as the Queen of Technicolor. She retired from acting in 1960 at age 37, thanks to a series of wise real estate investments. She is still alive today at age 96. Well, good for her. The Queen of Technicolor. Long live the Queen. (laughs) Indeed. Also in a small role in this film is the bride herself, Elsa Lanchester. Oh. So the spiral staircase shot from August to October 1945, completely shot on the RKO lot where the entire house featured in the film was built. Cinematography is by Nicholas Musaraka of Cat People, Seventh Victim, Ghost Ship, and Curse of the Cat People. The Spiral Staircase is considered one of his crowning achievements in chiaroscuro lighting. To obscure the killer's identity, Robert Siedmack stood in for close-ups of the killer's eyes and hands. (laughs) Good. Awesome. The Spiral Staircase was released on February 6th, 1946, and grossed $2.8 $2.8 million on a budget of 750000 Wow, so like three times what it cost. Yeah, it was a big hit. Uh, it was critically lauded, with Seed Mac being compared to Hitchcock as an equal, and the film was heavily analyzed by critics for its psychological themes, blending of horror and noir, and then, as I said later on, as a precursor to the slasher subgenre, due to its um, elements of, like, a female-centric cast. Uh, it sort of has, like, a final girl and a killer whose identity is obscured by using POV shots. All of these elements that would later become standard in, in uh, slasher films. Yeah, like, we've seen some proto-slashers in the sense of, like, an unstoppable killer coming yeah. through, but not in the way that the spiral staircase seems to be as a proto-slasher. Mm-hmm. The film was released in 2018 on Blu-ray by Kino Lorber. Thanks, Kino. Uh, well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy, check your local library, check Canopy, perhaps. Uh, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Spiral Staircase from 1946, directed by Robert Siedmack. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Spiral Staircase from 1946, directed by Robert Siedmack. Ben, thoughts? This is a really good movie? Yes, it is. It is nice when we can experience a good movie for once. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, why don't we talk about the plot? So, listener, picture yourself... Turn of the century New England, a quaint little town, every day like the one before, <laughs> except a string of murders have rocked the villagers to their core. 
Our main character, Helen, is attending a film screening at a hotel when a woman with a leg disability is murdered upstairs. This is apparently the third murder that has happened in the town, all of the victims being women with some kind of disability. Dr. Perry, who is new in town and is friends with Helen, drives her nearly home and expresses how there are ways to cure her muteness. <laughs> now, he doesn't drive her all the way home because um, part of the way a little boy runs up to Dr. Perry, my mom's sick, you need to help her, whatever. So he's called away for another patient, and Helen walks the rest of the way home. Um, the, a storm rolls in, and uh, in the middle of like the thunder and the rain, we see that she is stalked as she gets inside the house. We meet Mrs. Oates, a housekeeper, her husband, Mr. Oates, a handyman, Nurse Barker, who tries to take care of Mrs. Warren, the elderly and curmudgeonly bedridden patient who frequently chews the nurse out. We also meet Professor Albert Warren, Mrs. Warren's stepson, Stephen Warren, who is fresh back from Europe, um, presumably for leisure, um, who is Albert's stepbrother and Mrs. Warren's full son, and Blanche, who is Albert's secretary and is having an affair with Stephen. Did we say what Helen does in the house? Helen's a maid. So we have quite the old dark house set up here. Big mansion, stormy night, and a murder on the loose. And lots of characters. And lots of characters. We see and know that the dark figure who was stalking Helen outside has found his way indoors and is watching her. Everyone in town, but also in the house, is on high alert because Helen may be targeted because of her muteness. Even the constable arrives to the house to warn um, Albert to watch over her. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Warren seems to have kind of a sixth sense about danger and warns Helen to leave the house this night. You're in danger. You need to get out. When Mrs. Warren passes out from this kind of panic attack, Dr. Perry is sent for. And this is when the true old dark house begins. Uh, we have all the characters in the house. Nurse Barker and Helen can't find ether for Mrs. Warren to help like stimulate her out of being passed out. So Mr. Oates is sent out to get some from the next town over. Dr. Perry, meanwhile, confronts Helen about how she lost her voice to begin with. It was apparently a tragic loss of her parents um, when she was a young girl. And she agrees to go with him that night to seek medical help in Boston. Part of the impetus for leaving that night is Mrs. Warren has told Dr. Perry, you need to get Helen out of here tonight. Later, Dr. Perry is called away for another patient. So he gives a phone number to Helen and says, get Mrs. Oates to call me if you need anything. Mrs. Oates, who is an alcoholic, tricks Albert and gets some brandy from the cellar and ends up passed out drunk. Mrs. Warren um, and Nurse Barker don't get along, and there's a, a scene where Mrs. Warren fires Nurse Barker slash Nurse Barker quits and leaves that night. Throughout the evening, Stephen is getting real fresh with Blanche, and like it's clear that like they have a relationship, but Blanche is being like, I'm at work, leave me alone, stop it. But he just keeps pushing those buttons, and... Um, Albert finds them kissing at one point. Um, so she's quite upset. 
And later they also have a fight when Stephen kind of throws in Blanche's face that she had a previous relationship with Albert. So she breaks the things off with Stephen and plans to leave that night with Helen. Um, now, she goes to the basement to fetch her suitcase, and she is then attacked and killed by a killer unknown, but she recognizes who this person is. Mm-hmm. And, and we also know that it's the same killer as the previous murders. Yes. Because, like, the same cinematic techniques are being used to indicate this person. Yes. Helen goes looking for Blanche, finds her dead, and then Stephen comes in at the same time. So Helen's like, fuck, Stephen, Stephen did this. Stephen's not a good person. Like, he's, he's kind of a dick through the whole movie. Um, so she finds a way to lock Stephen in the basement cellar, runs up and tries to wake Mrs. Oates, who is passed out drunk. She finds herself alone, tries to call for Dr. Perry, but can't speak for, like, to give the number to the operator, despite her best attempts. But then, Helen runs and finds Albert. She writes a quick note to tell him that Blanche is dead, Stephen's the murderer. And as he is trying to console her, he reveals that he's the murderer. He explains that he killed Blanche because she didn't love him, despite him loving her. And the past murders are because he wants to kill all those weak and imperfect things in the world. As with many, uh, or at least the good old Dark House films that we've seen in the past, um, the whole night we learn bits and pieces of people's pasts, and um, we learn that being strong and not weak-willed was a big thing for Albert and Stephen's father. So this is clearly like a complex that Albert has developed from his father. Yeah, their dad was like a big name, like Craven the Hunter type. And then, you know, Albert's a like science professor and Stephen's like a lazy parasitical leech. Ouch. I mean <laughs> a lazy playboy. A lazy playboy. A playboy socialite, yeah. So like neither of those really like measure up to strong in their dad's eyes. Yeah. Their dad is long dead at this point, by the way. So to measure up to this ideal of strong, Albert has been killing the people, the women that he finds to be like weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen does escape from this initial encounter and we begin kind of a cat and mouse game. There's this fun scene where... Um, <laughs> The constable comes to the door just happenstance after Albert's revealed all of this to Helen. And the constable's like, hey, yeah, I was just coming by to let you know um, I passed Dr. Perry. He's not able to pick up Helen tonight. Okay, bye. (laughs) Um, Helen does try to get his attention by, like, banging out the window, throwing some stuff out a window. But he doesn't see her because of the, the storm. Mrs. Warren, earlier in the movie, had and hid a gun. So Helen runs to Mrs. Warren to get it, uh, but Mrs. Warren has passed out, and Helen can't find where she's hidden it. Then she hears Stephen calling from the basement, so she tries to go down the spiral staircase, Mm -hmm. uh, but she sees that Albert is hidden at the very bottom of the stairs in the basement. So Helen runs back up, Albert follows, and Mrs. Warren suddenly is standing at the top of the stairs with the gun, and she shoots Albert, and Helen screams. 
She shoots him like six times. Yes, that's fair. Like she empties the the whole revolver. Mrs. Warren gets Helen to go get Stephen, and as Stephen comes up, mother and son embrace, and she explains that this whole time she thought Stephen was the one committing the murders because Albert would wait till Stephen was home to do these murders. Um, but tonight she realized that it was Albert. Mrs. Warren collapses and actually passes away, and Helen goes to call Dr. Perry, and she's finally able to speak. The end. Yeah, it's it's a good movie. Yeah. I think a lot of what makes it good doesn't quite come across in a plot summary, though. As with many old Dark House. Well, I think the thing is, is like, this is absolutely like a classic old Dark House movie, but it's got something that we haven't seen in an old Dark House movie since... Old Dark House. Well, since, like, The Bat Whispers, probably, which is an A-movie budget. Yes. The joy of this movie is kind of seeing all the old tropes. Um, You know, large cast of characters, big house with many rooms, mystery killer, old dowager, etc. Used with, like, a contemporary, like, 1940s level of filmmaking sophistication. So you see what all these modern filmmaking techniques can do with all these old cliches, and it really helps, like, bring them all to life again, because so many of the old Dark House movies we've seen, you know, through the late 30s into the 40s, have been, like, these cheap B-movies where, as films, they're indistinguishable from watching a play, basically. And... A lot of them, like The Bat or The Bat Whispers, relied heavily on comedy. Mm. Whereas in Spiral Staircase, there's some black comedy, but that's really it. There's comic relief, Mm -hmm. but there aren't, like, vast stretches of slapstick or whatever, you know? Like, when the constable shows up... Right when, like, Helen's actually in peril, we had, or at least I felt, like, relief, like, oh, good, the constable's here. And then he's like, well, bye. Like, he literally says that, and he just burst out laughing. And, you know, speaking of that scene with the constable, that's a, like, dramatic device that I don't know if we've really seen before in a horror movie, but, like, certainly becomes well-used, this idea of, like, presenting a possible savior or way out, and then snatching that away. Yeah. There's also a lot of, like, classic misdirection, as you would expect in an old Dark House movie, both in the sense of, like, really playing Stephen up to be a a, a real, like, a douchebag, but also with, like, sprinkling in details that you don't actually need, or, like, I, I didn't even mention there's a little bulldog... I forget his name. Uh, Clayton, yeah. Yeah. He's, like, real useless. Um, But at one point, like, the constable mentions he's afraid of dogs. So you're like, ah, I will file that away to see if the murderer becomes afraid of dogs. And it was the policeman all along. And it's like, that doesn't come up again at all. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, good extraneous clues that don't lead anywhere, right? Which is a really good way of obfuscating who the murderer is. Because, yeah, when you have just, like... The only exposition you ever learn about people are all just clues to who the murderer is. Like, it starts to become really obvious because you're like, oh, what a weird detail to learn out of nowhere, right? Yeah, exactly. Bringing in a lot of, like, extraneous details about everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, for instance, when Stephen and Blanche have the fight... 
he's like, you'll regret this, or something like this, and it's like, oh boy, don't ever say that, and then walk away from someone. Sure. Like, because you know that that will be taken. If something happens to that person, that will be taken as proof of you are the murderer. Yeah. Just don't ever say it. Sure. But, in any case, um, it's not like they are putting in a lot of details about other people and not about the actual murderer. They do include stuff that would be like, oh, Albert's the murderer. Well, and what's really cool is Albert gets, you know, a a villainous monologue at the end. Mm -hmm. And part of that is not just explaining, like, his motives, but explaining how he's gotten Helen alone in the house. Yeah. And what's neat about that is, you know, it's kind of one of those villain monologues where, like, everything that happened in the movie was all part of my plan. But it manages to be believable. Well, because they're little things. Yes. Um, He lets Mrs. Oates steal the brandy from the cellar. He hides the ether so that Mr. Oates has to leave. He just lets Mrs. Warren and Nurse Barker go at each other. Yes. So he doesn't even have to do anything like that. And I think, you know, the thing with Mrs. Oates and the brandy is, like, when that moment happens, it's already been established before that that Mrs. Oates is an alcoholic. And so we know, like, okay, once she has the brandy, like, that's going to basically take her out as a character. And there's this scene where she, like, tricks Albert into basically not noticing when she steals the brandy. And it's one of those things where, like, as an audience member, you're kind of like, how does he not notice this? You kind of um, accept it because it's a movie. And then later it's like, oh, he did notice this. Yeah. In addition to using all of these old tropes in kind of these new fancy ways. What I saw a lot of in this movie was the introduction of new techniques that are going to be used again and again and again in horror movies after this. Absolutely. You know, like the way the killer is kept anonymous, the way that we see the victims through the killer's eyes, which creates a sort of voyeurism. Mm -hmm. In the audience. Um, It definitely helped me realize, like, why the novels originally called Some Must Watch. mm. Because before I was like, what is she trying to get at here? (laughs) And this voyeurism creates a kind of forced identification between the audience and the killer. And this is something that we'll see, you know, many times uh, in movies after this. Absolutely. Um... A lot of aspects of the film predict key elements of the slasher genre that is, you know, still, like, minimum 20 years in the future. But I think there are three that are most prominent. Okay. So first up, I would argue that Helen basically qualifies for final girl status. Absolutely. You know, granted, there are other survivors of the killer in this movie... Um, But Helen is a lead female protagonist who we follow nearly exclusively and who is gradually isolated until it's just her and the killer. And it's her survival that marks the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, sure, we could assume that she'll get together with Dr. Perry after the events of the story, but he isn't there to protect her. Mm -hmm. And the movie doesn't end with, like, the two of them holding hands and walking into the sunset. The movie ends with, cool, she's survived. I think it is also interesting that, A, it's that she survived, but B, she has her voice back. Mm -hmm. 
you know, speaking of Perry not being there to help her, um, this movie, I think, presents a very different view of the police that becomes, like, more and more common in these movies. We've had police be the people who come in and save the day, and we've also had police who were kind of, like, comic... Right. Comic relief. The constable is neither. He's not incompetent, but he also doesn't save anybody. He's basically just um, ineffectual. Mm-hmm. It's it's he's useless. Yeah, well, I mean, like that's so useless that like like the reason he's in the house in the first place is because they've tracked the killer to the manor. But in the past, if a police officer wasn't going to actually help take down the villain at the end. It was because they were incompetent. This is a police officer who isn't incompetent, but still doesn't come to the rescue, isn't going to save the lead character. And that's like a different view of police. For sure. Secondly, the killer has no reasonable motivation. They are, you know, Albert is insane. Yes. Um, The Leopard Man also did this earlier. Um, It was a very early example of, you know, the psycho killer. But I think it's worth mentioning again here because of the fact that this is so clearly in the Old Dark House subgenre. And killers in the Old Dark House genre were almost always motivated by greed or revenge. You know, I'm looking yeah. for... I need to kill this girl so I can get the inheritance. Yes, exactly. I'm I'm looking for the old money that's buried on the property. Uh, I always hated you ever since we were children. Whatever. Like, But this guy, you know, he's nuts. Yeah. Number three, black leather gloves. Sure. Albert, His killing gloves, as I called them. Yeah. Albert wears these black leather gloves, and he, his method of um, murder is strangling because it's 1946. And the thing that just sparked off in my mind is in Italian giallo films from the 60s and 70s, Black leather gloves would become an iconic visual signifier used for the same reason that they are here, which is to show the killer doing things without showing the killer's face. Yeah. And I think, like, it's a sign or a signifier of, like, I'm about to do something. Like, yes. it ups the tension, for sure. Because he has them on, and then the, the constable's at the door, and he takes them off. Yeah, it's, like, as a, a way as you kind of said, a way to conceal the killer without having to do a goofy mask. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you can and you can show what the killer's doing, because you can show his hands, you know... Uh, Creeping in yeah, shadow. Yeah, you know, opening a door, whatever. Like, in, in Giallo films, what it becomes is you can see the killer as they, uh, you know, cut the phone lines or, or, you know, do whatever things. So this movie's really interesting for the way that it blends this kind of very old... Um, cliche setup that's that's sort of been old-fashioned for like 20 years even at this point with these hints of the directions that this genre is going to move in. Yeah, and I think like to kind of call back to its connection with The Leopard Man, episode 105, I give a bit of a history of serial killers up to like the 1940s. And what was neat with the Leopard Man is it kind of started to predict the idea of, like, us being, us as in the audience, being fascinated with the psychology. Yeah. Um, now, 
the Leopard Man is still a little fantastical in the way that he's, like, killing people, um, even though Albert is still insane, it's much more grounded. Yes. Um, maybe it's because we get told tidbits about his psychological profile and the way he even carries himself, and so we were able to, like, absorb them in a more realistic, natural way. But even looking beyond just Albert, like, what I love when the Old Dark House genre is done well, as seen in the Old Dark House film, everyone has, like, full, thought-out psychological profiles. Yes. Um, And we see that here, especially in the case of Helen. Yes. There's a whole sequence in the film that has nothing to do with the mystery plot. And everything to do with just letting the audience assume the same mental state as Helen. Where after Dr. Perry's like, oh, I'm going to take you to Boston. We're going to get you cured. Helen has like a daydream about, you know, oh, we're going to fall in love and we're going to get married. You know, she, yeah. she dreams about dancing with Dr. Perry and she dreams about... A you know, big lavish wedding. wedding with all of the characters of the movie attending, and you know it's it's all so beautiful and wonderful until the priest asks for her to say "I do," and she can't, and the wedding just like stops, and everyone's looking at her, and the priest just like "Say I do," and and she can't, and it turns into this you know horror, and obviously realistically. Like, if you were a mute person, like, there are ways to get married. <laughs> um, but it, it helps you understand, like, her anxieties and her feelings of, like, detachment from other people. And it helps you understand how she feels about her own condition. Because um, one of the interesting things about Helen is she's presented as, you know, being this person who could speak and is now mute. But... She's also presented as someone who's, like, adapted very well to being mute. Mm -hmm. But scenes like this, you know, internal dream help us understand that just because she has adapted well to it doesn't necessarily mean it's a state she wants to be in. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, everything about this movie is is really well done. Um, Very compelling cinematography, Mm -hmm. mise-en-scene, direction, lighting, acting, and writing. Everything is very well done here. You have to imagine the joy that Nicholas Musaraka must have felt getting five times his regular budget and six times his usual shooting schedule to, you know, put these images on the screen. Because time and money are the factors that will, you know, make a good cinematographer great. And you can really see it through the whole movie, you know, because not only is there his usual shadow-drenched cinematography, but the thing I noticed is the camera is always moving. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of always gliding through the house um, as the characters move, almost as if you are following them around the house, which again increases this voyeuristic aspect that the movie uh, has. Rather than just a proscenium style of filming, which is very common with Old Dark House films because, like, they were adapted from plays. Like, it's very easy to do an Old old Dark House setup as a play. Well, and also, the thing that 
becomes difficult if you're going to do a moving camera like it is in this movie. Without it, if you're just doing locked off cameras, then, you know, characters are in room A, they move over to room B and you cut to your camera set up in room B. And this is a lot easier because it works very well with your traditional three-walled set where the fourth wall doesn't exist and there's a bunch of, you know, people with cameras and shit. Yeah. If you're going to have a camera that moves with the characters through the house, you need to build the whole house and you need to have a set that can accommodate like a camera crew. Usually in this movie, it would be like a dolly track moving through the whole house, um, which is a lot more difficult to do, requires a lot more time, a lot more money. Even the lighting setup, like when they go, when people go into the basement and they are just lit by a single candle, I think like they must have had a flashlight hidden in the candle holder or something showing on someone's face because it was so bright, so consistent on their face. And like, I don't think there would be a way to adequately do it and move with the person as smoothly as it did if it was like a spotlight. Well... They did have spotlights yes. at times, but I'm talking about like when it's just their face. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of usage of lighting in this movie that is actually um, evocative or like symbolic usage yeah. where lights like fade out and leave someone isolated in the dark. But the movie does a good job of making them feel like they're motivated lighting choices caused by real lights in the scene even when they're really not. Yeah. Um, Just so that it doesn't draw attention to itself, because, you know, doing some sort of ostentatious lighting like that is sort of outside the norms of accepted Hollywood filmmaking at this time, right? You know, there's a a scene that I think about where Helen, like, closes the front door and kind of stands up against it, and the lighting around her kind of fades out until it's just her face, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel out of place. Yeah, yeah. that's also right before we head into her daydream. Uh, can I just say that I love that it's Mrs. Warren that saves the day? Of course. It's so good. Ethel Barrymore, when they were shooting that scene, director Robert Siedmack approached her and said, you know, do you want to hold the gun with, with both hands? Um, you know, kind of, I guess... Because she's she was like 67 making this movie. And, and she's also supposed to be a frail old woman. woman. And yeah, all these things. And Ethel Barrymore said, No, my, my character was supposed to be a great hunter, right? I'll hold the gun with one hand. And she, boy, she like owns it. Oh, she's so good. I think she's definitely like a standout in the cast for sure. Um, she creates such a forceful and dynamic character even when she's bedridden for most of the movie. Yeah, just the way she will look around mm-hmm. and then pretend to be asleep and then look around again. You, you get the feeling of what kind of person Mrs. Warren must have been in her prime yeah. and how forceful she is as, like, a dying old woman. Yeah. You think, like, okay, what must she have been like? And the fact that she and her husband had such a um, strong effect on their children becomes very believable. Absolutely. Um, she was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for this. 
Oh. Not that she would have cared. No, she would not have. <laughs> of course, the other standout in the cast is Dorothy McGuire as Helen. Yes. She does a very impressive job of getting her feelings and um, what her character is experiencing across without, obviously, using words, but without it being, like, overblown. Yeah, she doesn't go into, like, silent movie acting. Yeah, like, I feel like it was a really hard line for her to walk without going into, like, miming. Mm -hmm. Just, like, overdramatic, overemphasized everything. Um, I think the fact that the movie does have quite a few close-ups on her face allows her to really do that subtly mm-hmm. um, without having to, like, you know, if if a shot is the whole living room, of course she's going to have to do a bit more. But if it's a close-up on her face, she can allow those subtleties in her face. Um, but yeah, even when she is, like, struggling to speak and just can't, and then at the end when she suddenly is able to speak, like, she can get out the numbers to where Dr. Perry is, um, it is, like, it's not like, oh, I can suddenly talk. It's, like coarse mm-hmm. and like difficult for her to say because she hasn't used her vocal cords in years like mm-hmm. very very well done and the thing that i really noticed right off the bat is that in addition to being able to let us into her state of mind through just like facial expression and stuff she also like pretty much instantly creates a very likable character yeah from like the start of the movie helen is very charming and very likable. She's someone we like being around and like seeing. And that's really hard to do, like, without dialogue, without being able to speak. And it's so important, I think, for the movie that you you like Helen. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that comes across is because the whole cast seems to like her. Yes. Yeah, like, Albert even seems to like her. Yeah, until we find out he's the killer... It was really nice to see a movie where every character, you know, likes and enjoys the lead female character. Yeah. There's no one who's like, ah, Helen, she's a woman. Probably should have been left behind, you know. Or There's no one who's, who's you know, bitching about her being a woman or bitching about her being mute or, or you know, treating her like she's an idiot or any of this stuff. And she herself doesn't come across as someone who's, like, you know, annoying or or cloying or, or any of these things. And it's so important because if we're going to be worried for her and scared for her at the end of the movie, we have to like her. Yeah. When we said last episode that, hey, we're doing Spiral Staircase, um, I brought up that it's November in real life times. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the Spiral Staircase I've seen being brought out as, hey, watch this film noir. Yeah, um, I, I read a lot of stuff saying, you know, it's an interesting blend of noir and horror. And I almost disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is 100% horror. I can see where people get the film noir stuff um, because they share that uh, ancestor of German expressionism and also because of, like looking into the killer's perspective with the, the, the cinematic techniques there. But I, I really do feel like this is more horror than noir. Yeah. Um, because, like, <laughs> we're a horror podcast. We don't have, like, set rules for what defines a, a film noir. But for me, like, A, 
we're not trying to solve a thing. We're trying to sure. survive a thing. B, our, our protagonist isn't doomed despite or because of our own actions. Yeah. Um, like, if you think of, like, obviously this is a neo-noir, but if you think of Chinatown, mm-hmm. like, Jake gets put right back where he was almost in spite of his own agency. And C, there's no heroes or anti-heroes. Right. There's just survivors. Yeah, or murderers. Um, well, like, because of the psychological profile, I think you could make a case that Albert himself is a survivor of a, of a very troubling childhood. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think you're totally right. I 100% agree with you on this, um, for exactly the same reasons. You know, the, the biggest one being that, like, for me, on top of the visuals, because the visuals of noir are so distinctive, but on top of the visuals... The thing that separates a noir from just a detective movie or just a crime movie is that the hero doesn't get a happy ending. Yeah. Like that the hero kind of, you know, screws themselves over uh, in some way or another. You mentioned Chinatown. The other one that is really easy as an example is Detour. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's not what's going on here. In every narrative trope, this is an old dark house movie. Yeah, it is 100% horror um, I think you could even make the case for it being gothic horror, yeah. though I feel like there would need to be a little bit more romance for that to really be the case. But yeah, this is an old Dark House movie. Definitely horror. Definitely going on the list. Can we rank this? Uh, I have a few more things I want to talk about. Oh, 100. Okay, cool. So the film's music, which is by Val Luton collaborator Roy Webb, is really doing an incredible job here in balancing a lot of different tones uh, romance, terror, melodrama. Theremin. Yes. So there's this immediately recognizable theremin sting that is used to accompany the killer whenever the killer is on screen. Uh, it's quite good. Yeah, and it is a nice break from the old Hammond organ yes. that we've gotten. I love both instruments, don't get me wrong, but it is a nice break. So something I thought about while watching this movie is how certain elements might have resonated with a post-World War II audience. Yeah. For one, we have this dark-haired, mustachioed man going on about how the weak and imperfect need to be eliminated. Sure. Or, on the other hand, we have the experience of Helen, who has lost her voice due to shock which would be the contemporary term at the time for what we would now call PTSD. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to... I think it's important to think about how an audience of the time would have been reacting to that. It's February of 1946, so the soldiers are home, mm-hmm. right? So we have a lot of people dealing with PTSD, whether that's someone who is suffering from it or that's a, you know, wife or family member welcoming someone back into their home who is not the same person who left, right, and how to deal with that. And then we have this eugenicist streak in this movie presented by the villain and, you know, how that would have kind of connected with people. You know, American audiences in in this period were really... um, Sheltered? Oh, I was going to say we're really um, shook up by the kind of discoveries of the post-war of just exactly 
what Hitler was doing, or more specifically, the scale upon which he was doing it. Because I think everybody kind of had a general idea that, like, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the Jews in Nazi Germany, but I think it was the scale of what was going on that really shocked Mm -hmm. a lot of people. Yeah, the reason why I thought maybe the word you were looking for was sheltered is because I think, like, you see this more clearly in World War One, but the U.S. and Canada as well being so, like, geographically distant, mm. so not having to think about the horrors of war every day. Mm-hmm. I think the reason why I didn't use that word was because, because um, it's 1946 and the servicemen and women are being, you know, recalled home, there is now a significant portion of the movie going public who do know about those horrors of war because they've been there. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think, like, what's always so, like, messy, and it shouldn't be messy, but what always seems very messy is when, like, you have eugenics-related types of theories or arguments, even, like, economic arguments, like, even, like, with Thanos from Endgame, like, people are always like, oh, yeah, maybe. Well, because it's a very easy argument to fall into, particularly because those kind of methodologies humans have used for many, many years on plant and animal populations. You know, okay, we're going to breed a better horse. We're going to, you know, make sure that this fruit gives us the best yield. We're going to, you know, these kind of things. And so it becomes very easy to fall into this idea of like, well, we don't want people to have MS or, uh, you know, whatever other degenerative disease we want to prevent. You know, I know autism is a big hot button one right now. Um, So let's sterilize all the people with that disease. And that's not the way to go about doing that. But you can see how people fall into it because it seems like, well, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? Especially if you don't know anyone personally who is afflicted by these things. So it all becomes a very like, hypothetical um, mind exercise, basically. Or the idea of, like, you know, so many people who I've talked to through my whole life where, oh, the way we're going to solve global warming and poverty and uh, hunger and all of these worldwide issues that result from the imbalance of resource allotment, we'll say, in the world is this idea of like, oh, well, the world has an overpopulation problem. we got to get the population down. And it's like, mm, no, the world doesn't have an overpopulation problem. We have a resource allocation problem. problem. Yeah, exactly. There's more than enough to go around. We've just given most of it to like five people. Um, and the idea of like, well, how do we get overpopulation down is a real slippery slope that becomes very easily into, well, how do you get rid of a lot of people? Yeah. And then how do you choose what people to get rid of? Oh, well, these people over here are mute or they're deaf or they're, you know, this or that or the other thing. So mm-hmm. we're going to Spartan this and throw them off the cliff to the wolves or whatever the fuck, right? Yeah. yeah. That's why, like, I appreciate this movie taking on an argument like that head on and, and challenging it and showing that, no, that's not okay, obviously. And I think, like... I, I don't think it, it, it means to do this intentionally, but the fact that Helen gets her voice back at the end muddles the 
idea of like, well, see, like she, it wasn't a real disability. Sure, sure. Um, I hear what you're saying. Which like, I don't think was their intent. I think it was like, see, like she's able to move on with her life now, despite this new addition to her trauma box. Well, that was the thing is, is there's actually, in my view, kind of a bit of an ambiguity about the ending where she can talk and she can speak and she asks for Perry on the phone, but like, then she like kind of immediately breaks down crying and then like, she seems like a little bit glad that she can talk, but like, I find it interesting and ambiguous that like, she lost her voice because of a great trauma. She gains it back because of a great trauma, right? Yeah. She doesn't gain it back because like, she doesn't gain it back because Dr. Perry, the noble physician manages to cure her. Right? Mm-hmm. She gains it back because fucking Ethel Barrymore shoots a dude, like, to death no, in front of her. <laughs> I, I think, like, yes, but also she was going to be murdered. <laughs> like, I feel like that's a bigger trauma than sure, being sure, sure. rescued by Ethel Barrymore. Sure. Um, but I think in regards to the anti-eugenicist statement, the smart thing this movie does, too, is what I was talking about earlier about making Helen very likable. Yeah. Because then we're rooting for her and we're cheering for her and we like her. And ultimately, you know, especially with like a movie going audience, the way that you're going to get people to go, huh, I guess people with disabilities are people is by making them empathize with a person like that and like a person like that. Right. Because you can present a lot of intellectual arguments, but they can all remain theoretical if you don't put a human face on it, right? Yeah. Okay, do we want to rank this movie? Yeah, we've talked about eugenics, now let's rank. Yep, that's right. (laughs) The eugenics of movies. (laughs) Ranking them on a list from best to worst. Um, so I just have a spot. So do I. Oh, sweet, okay. Who wants to go first? Do you want (laughs) to rock, paper, scissors for it? (laughs) I'll go first. Okay. Um... So, this is obviously an old Dark House movie. Mm-hmm. So, I was thinking about the last best old Dark House movie we had, which was The Old Dark House from 1932, episode 34, ranked number three. I felt that The Spiral Staircase is better because, obviously, the cinematic techniques and everything are, are a lot better, but even just looking at the writing, mm-hmm. The Old Dark House, a bunch of quote-unquote normal people arrive to this very weird house mm-hmm. and they're trapped there for the night. Whereas Spiral Staircase, it's a bit more down-to-earth. Like, everyone's just people. Well, and, and the weird <laughs> everyone's thing... Everyone's just people, then. The weird thing about the movie The Old Dark House is even though it's, like, the subgenre namer, it actually doesn't have a lot of the typical narrative tropes of Old Dark House because... It, you know, it has the, this thing of like, oh, our car broke down. Can we spend the night in the spooky old house? And like, oh, all the people in the spooky old house sure are like weird. And oh, are these, there's these family secrets and things. And that's all there. But there isn't like, you know, there's one mystery murderer who's going around and who is it? You know, there isn't like that element of like, oh, there's all these characters because who might be the murderer. Like, mm-hmm. we know that it's not any of the people who showed up. You know, it's not Charles Lawton. It's not any of these other people, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't have a lot of the typical signifiers. Spiral Staircase does. It yeah. is using all of the old cliches, but doing them very well. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, I don't know how I feel about it 
in comparison with cat people. Mm. And I think it's because, after doing some soul-searching, I think it's because cat people and the number one film on the list, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, all focus around, like, three people, Mm -hmm. four at the most. Mm -hmm. Whereas Spiral Staircase, it's this entire, like, house full of people. Sure, we focus on Helen the most, and then a bit on the Warren brothers, but it's still, like, everyone else in the house. And that's that's great. That's cool. Whatever. But for my personal um, horror tastes, I guess, since we're, like, looking at the top three spots on the list, I I feel like having it down to just three or four people really solidifies the horror because it, it focuses the story more. So my spot on the list was below Cat People and above The Old Dark House at number three. Just a high five. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Entering we- the list at number three... <laughs> Because that was also my spot for basically the same reasons. Oh, sweet. Is The Spiral Staircase from 1946, directed by Robert Siedmack. Well, folks, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes and films that we've mentioned today. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit your appeal through our Ask box on Tumblr, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud, and you can follow us through whatever podcast app you prefer uh, using our RSS feed. If you would like to help the show out, something that you can do that we would really appreciate is tell your friends about the show. Uh, If you know folks who are into old... Dark houses? Sure. And classic Hollywood and, you know, the history of old Hollywood and... The history of slasher films? And, you know, classic horror and all of this kind of stuff. Let them know about the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's... uh, Something I'm sure they will enjoy. Or, uh... <laughs> I'm sure they will enjoy us. I, well, yeah, I mean, we've been doing this for, you know, almost 140 episodes. Yeah. We know what we're doing. And if you have the resources, I would also encourage you to head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get uh, extra bonus content that is uploaded to our Patreon. And if we hit our Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will start doing bonus episodes, one a month, on horror-adjacent films. Uh, Looking at movies like, say, Clue. It came from Hollywood. Right. (laughs) As suggested by a friend of ours. Or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Or the Wolfman. No, they meet Frankenstein. I mean, they meet the Wolfman, but that's not the name of the movie. Okay, okay, okay. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, long ago... In a galaxy far, far away? Eh, in Nazi Germany. We watched a film called Fairman Maria. Yeah. Directed by Frank Vispar. Next week, Frank Vispar comes to Hollywood... And he makes a movie for PRC. And that movie is Strangler of the Swamp, his American remake of Fairman Maria. 
Excellent. And that will be next week's movie. I am super excited for this. So am I. Yeah. Cool. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.